I just finished this book and this whole series. It's based on this book, but you're not going to hear 99% of what's in the sermon is not coming out of this book. So this is by Craig Groeschel. He is the pastor of uh, Life Church. They have all kinds of folks. LifeChurch.tv. You can go on and, and uh, find out more about that. But this is an exceptional book. If you want to be who God says you should be, get this book, Alter Ego, and spend some time. Uh, now, the reason we're doing this series is because throughout history, um, the altar, A-L-T-A-R, has been a place where people would come and they would sacrifice something to God. Now, last week we looked at Gideon, and we found out that Gideon had to lay down his feelings of inadequacy if he was going to be who God wanted him to be. And, and here's a newsflash. If you want to be who God wants you to be, you're going to have to lay down your feelings of inadequacy as well. And the three main points were this. God sees more in us than we see in, than we think, right? So he sees in us what we don't even recognize. Uh, God has given us more than we think. And then the last thing is, it's way less about us than we think. And this last point is what's going to drive our sermon today. Um, it's so much less about you than what you think. Today, we're going to talk about laying down our need to control. So I want to play a game today, right? If you um, like to be in control, I want you to raise your hand. And if you're on Facebook, I want you to say, that's me. Now, if you keep your hands up, just a second, we're playing a game. If you are looking around and feeling the need to raise your neighbor's hand, you are a control freak. This, okay, you can put them down. This sermon is for you. Um, now, it's very common for us to have certain areas where we want to control and other areas we just don't give a rip about. I mean, that's just human nature. For example, how many of you think that folding towels, it's important to do it one way and your way only? Let me see your hands. Okay, newsflash for you. I like for the towels to be folded, but it's not that big a deal to me. If I ever fold your towel and you in front of me refold the towel, I will never fold a towel for you again, ever, in, in, in my life, Right? Uh, how many of you think there's one way to load a dishwasher? Get over yourself, right? If I ever load a dishwasher for you and you reload it in front of me, I will never ever, because life's too short for me to worry about your idiosyncrasies. Idiosities. Wait, no, did I say that? Idiosyncrasies, right? Okay. Putting away the dishes. Anybody? There's one way to put away the dishes? Which way the toilet paper goes on the roll? It is biblical that it comes over the top. Everyone else is wrong. I will, in your house, I will go around and check your toilet paper rolls. And by the grace of God, I will fix them for you so that Satan doesn't enter your toilet room while you're there. I'm constantly amazed at how many people have opinions on how I, should, how I should parent my adult children. I'm not making this up. Like, so let me, this is not a trick question. How many Holy Spirits are there? One. That job is taken. You can't even put in your resume. You will not get that job. I had a guy totally serious look me in my eye and say, you should do this with your children. And his children are some of the worst kids. His kids are the ones that when they go to the nursery, the nursery workers turn off the lights and hide. Pretend we're not here. I am not making this up. I'm going, dude, are you serious? 
You can't even control your own kids. My kids are out the house. And so I, as lovingly, I'm serious, as lovingly as I could, I said, dude, you got no right to speak into my life. I didn't tell him all that other stuff. I, I waited to tell you that other stuff. <laughs> now, I, I will admit there's a lot of things, most things I don't care about. But there is one God-ordained piece of equipment in my house. And there's only one person chosen by God to use this piece of equipment. It is a spiritual gift bestowed upon me by the Father himself. Every man knows it's not so much about what's on, it's about what else is on. Because let me just tell you this, I cannot stand commercials. DVR was a gift of God, right? I think it's back there in the last page of Revelation. DVR, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, but I can't stand, so I will pause until we get enough, I love recording shows because I'm just, you know, I'm going to skip through the commercial. Can't stand commercials. And so if you're not paying attention at my house, that little swap button, right? So we'll be going along and you'll be doing this something and then a comedy will come on and people will go, what just happened? I'm like, well, you need to pay attention because I'm over here running this show. And, uh, and I, it's a gift. I can watch multiple shows and keep, right? Okay. Now, <laughs> what we do Control freaks, what we do is we try to control really two categories. We try to control people, and we try to control circumstances. And so I want to tell you this. There, there may be someone in your life, and um, there may be one or two or ten things you don't like about them. If you've been in church, not just this church, you've been in any church for any amount of time, you're going to hear something like this. God loves people and God has a wonderful plan for their lives. Well, when it comes to you, we could say that you're like God because you love people and you have a wonderful plan for their lives and your plan is so much better than their plan. You have such a wonderful plan that in order to get them what to, to do what you want them to do, you'll manipulate, you'll bribe, you'll withhold rewards, you'll use passive aggressive behavior or even even threaten them. We really believe we know what's best and we want to control those around us for their own good, of course, for their good. It could be coworkers, it could be those who work for you, it could be your spouse, it could be your children. If everyone would just listen to you, their lives and really your life, and that's the bottom line, would be so much better if they would just Listen, so if I've touched on anyone in the room or you know of someone who struggles with this, I would like you to say one word. I want you to say guilty. We need a few more people to say that before we can move on, right? We say guilty. If you're on Facebook watching this, and there should be a whole lot of guilties because I know who you are. And you should be writing it out right now. So we try to control people. We also try to control circumstances. You ever want to look just right before you leave the house? You have no idea how long it takes to look like this. <laughs> to be beautiful. John told me last week, he goes, you've got such a great bald head. I'm like, thanks, man. That means I have a, a ball on the top of my head, right? Um, he goes, no, man, you got a great... Thanks. I'd, I'd much rather have hair, but um, 
<laughs> you want to look just right before you leave the house. You want your house to be perfect before someone comes over. You don't have to raise your hands on this. We want our kids to be perfect. We want our jobs to be perfect. We want our vacation to be perfect. We want you to see only the perfect picture. So it may take 800 pictures to get the perfect one to put on Facebook, but look at me. We want to control what others think of us. We want to control the future. Do you know why we want to be in control? Here's why. Because our ego is out of control. Our ego is out of control, so we try to control other things. There's a guy named Ken Blanchard, and he's written over 60 books, and he's a Christian. He's a leadership expert. I had to read a couple of his books when I was in seminary. Um, here's what he says ego stands for. Ego stands for edging God out. And then as I was studying for this, I thought edging God out is not good enough description for some of you folks. So I put evicting God out. You want him out. You want him out now. And some of you are not even nice about how you try to get him out of your life. My ego is so big, so out of control that I'm going to try to force God out and I'm going to force myself on you so that I can save you from yourself. I'm going to evict God from my life. Now, if you're a control, control freak, you actually have a theme verse in the Bible. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 from the CFV. Here it is. I want you to help me out. So the highlighted words I want you to say, trust in the Lord with how much of your heart? Some of your heart. And, and you're going to do what? Lean entirely on your own understanding. Here we go. In, in how many ways? In some of your ways, acknowledge God. And what will you do? You will make your path straight. That's the CFV. That is the control freak version. It does not exist. Here's what the real version says. Trust in the Lord. Help me out with what? All your heart. And do not what? Do not lean on your own understanding because you're going to fall on your face. How many of you have done that? You said, oh, I get this, and you fall flat because God said you leaned on your own understanding. In how many ways? All your ways acknowledge him. And what will God do? He will make your path straight. Now, here's something that's really interesting. If you're, if you're, if you're thinking this through, you'll get this. The more we try to control something, the more we fear losing control. It's called the fear cycle. You've heard of the, the crazy cycle. We talk about that in marriage counseling all the time. If, if a husband is not acting lovingly towards his wife, then she reacts disrespectfully to him, and he's unloving, she's disrespectful. It's this crazy cycle, and, and you go nuts. Well, here's the fear cycle. The more you try to hold on and control something, the more you fear losing control, the less you lean uh, on God, and you'll lean more on your own understanding. And some of you today, many of you today are thinking, man, I hope she's listening or he's listening. If you're thinking that, here's your sign. You're a control freak and you better pay attention. And here's the reason. Control is very, very difficult to see in the mirror. That's the next one there. And that's because we don't spend a lot of time in this. We don't spend time in God's word and it's, God's word is called a mirror. And when we don't spend time, we're not convicted of this by the Holy Spirit. This is not about making someone feel bad, but conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's when it pierces through your heart. You may be, you may be reading the Bible and you come across a verse and, and Scripture says the Bible 
God's word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There should be times when you're reading and it jumps off and pierces to your soul because it's the word of God. Or you may be at a sermon or you may be at a, at a Bible study and the spirit of God takes the word of God and rips open your soul and says, here's your sign. You're a control freak. You better pay attention to the word of God if you want to be different, if you want to point others towards me. And, and what the word is telling us is, is we're, we're edging God out. We're evicting God. And, and sometimes we don't even know it. It's part of why we need the church to help us recognize that. We're going to look at a couple in the Old Testament, originally named Abram and Sarai. Later, God changes their names to Abraham and Sarah. Now, to say that Abram and Sarai had control issues is a major understatement. From the time God calls Abram and says, go to a land, I'll show you, he's got some serious control issues. Sarai does too. For example, one time, uh, God had taken him through the promised land and said, I'm going to give this land to you and your ancestors. And he's already said, you're going to, the whole world's going to be blessed through you, this whole thing. Well, a famine comes, so he goes down. He and Sarai go down to Egypt um, because there was no food in the promised land. So this famine drives him down. Well, Sarai, the Bible tells us, is exceedingly beautiful. She is magnificent. And so Abram, being the, being the wonderful husband that he is, he comes to her and says, you are exceedingly beautiful. And she's thinking, oh, thank you, sweetheart. And he goes, and so if you love me, I want you to lie. Don't tell people you're my wife because if you're, you, that you tell them that you're my wife, they may kill me and take you to be their wife. So he's like, if you love me, sweetheart, lie and say you're my sister. Does anyone think this is a good plan? Sure enough, the king's... Um, Servants saw Sarai, and she was magnificent. So they go tell the king, you need to get this woman. She needs to be in your harem. So the king goes and takes her. That's a sister. She's not married. He takes her. God inflicts them with unbelievable diseases, and we don't know how, but God tells the king, you finna die because you took somebody else's wife. And so the king brings her back and said, why did you lie to me? This is your wife. And, and Abraham's like, uh, I don't know. But God had warned the king, don't you mess with Abram. And so they sent him on their merry way. And Abram learned the lesson, the control freak lesson so well that eight chapters later in another area, he lies to another king and she lies to another king. And, and Wow. But that's not even the one I want to tell you about. The biggest example happens in Genesis chapter 15. So God had, had called Abram to come from, from uh, Mesopotamia all the way. It's, it's over 900 miles to the promised land, and, and God says, I'm going to bless you, and, and all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, through your, um, through your inheritance, through your, your children. And so he has no child. God calls him. God calls Abraham when he's 75 years old, and then he says, I'm going to bless you. Well, many years later, he doesn't have a kid, and he's like, dude, I know how this works. God, you may not know how this works, but I'm getting old. My wife's getting old, right? And so he comes to God, and he says, I don't have a child. And so the logical thing was, in that day, the law said that, that the, the, the highest servant, so his servant named Eliezer, if Abram and Sarai died, all of his inheritance went to Eliezer. So he says to God, you hadn't given me a child. Is Eliezer going to be my heir? God takes him outside in Genesis 15, 5, and he says this. He, and I want you to know who was speaking here, God, took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, 
so shall your offspring be. Now, I want you to get this, right? You've been outside. You've seen the stars and all that stuff. Well, I found a picture from the wilderness, probably very near where it's from Negev, probably where God was talking to Abraham. And here's what the picture looked like. Count those stars. Can you do it? God's saying to his servant who's getting worried that God's not, not working on his time frame, and he says, look up. I know you don't have any children, but this is what your children are going to be like someday. God promised this childless couple who could not conceive, you're going to have this many descendants. Did God say when he was going to start the process? No, and that's the problem. And what happens when God doesn't fulfill his promise on your timetable? What happens? Do you ever run ahead of God? Is it ever a good idea to run ahead of God? No, so in this situation, it's not Abram says, oh, you're beautiful, lie. No, this is Sarah. Sarah has, comes up with a great idea. Since God's not moving fast enough, she's going to take matters into her own hands. Genesis chapter 16, here's where it's, what it says. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, look at this, the Lord, say the Lord. The Lord has kept me from having children. Whose fault is it? The Lord's. It's his fault. If he'd done what he said he was going to do when I wanted him to do it, we wouldn't be in this situation, so I've got a plan. And if you've ever watched a rom-com movie, this is kind of on the same level as all rom-com movies. There's always a plan. It's always a stupid plan, and you're sitting there going, don't do it, you moron, and he does it. All right, so here's what happens. Long before rom-coms were filmed, here's the idea. Go and sleep with my slave. Come again. Look what she says, perhaps I can, perhaps I, since God won't do it, I can build a family through her. Abraham, being the wise man that he is, he's like, okay, if I have to, dude, God's not moving fast enough, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands and get this show on the road. Does anybody think this is a bad plan? Not Sarah, because Sarah knows better than God. God's, didn't plan, God's plan didn't fit with her plan, so she's going to run ahead of God. That's what, conf, con, that's what control freaks do. I can't tell you, and I'm being totally dead serious, I can't tell you how many times this story in my life and in my ministry has kept me from doing something stupid because God will say, do you remember Abram? And God will speak to my spirit and say, don't you run ahead of me. Don't be like Abraham or Abram at this point. Now, Craig Groeschel, I thought this was funny, so I'm going to put this up here. He says there's two things to remember. Never, ever forget this. Number one, whatever you do, never, ever, ever sleep with a woman named Hagar. That's just a bad idea. Number two, don't ever forget rule number one. Abraham forgot them both. Look what homeboy says. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, so God called him at 75. Now at 85, he sleeps with Sarai, or Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and and what happens? She conceives. When, When the baby is born, Abram is 86 years old. God called him at least 11 years before this. It's been 11 years. God, you're not moving fast enough. Now, 
The interesting thing, if you need to go read this story, in chapter 16, she runs away because as soon as she conceives, Sarah gets jealous of her and starts treating her badly because she's not really, she's not on the same level. Sarah is the head wife, right? Even though, even though um, Abram was slept with her and conceived, she is not on the level with Sarah. So he says, treat her however you want to. She treats her bad. So Hagar runs away and God finds her. The angel of the Lord shows up to her and says, I have seen you. And he says, you're going to have a son. You are pregnant. You're going to conceive. I want you to name him Ishmael. And then he says this. He will be a wild donkey of a man. He will be against everyone, and everyone will be against him. This decision to run ahead of God has impacted the world for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. From the moment Hagar gets pregnant, Sarah and her have tension. Hagar has the son, names him Ishmael, 14 years later. So when Abram is 100 years old, God gives him and Sarai a child named Isaac. And the moment Isaac was born, there's tension between Ishmael and Isaac. God said there would be. Isaac is the son of the promise. Ishmael is the son of a control freak who wanted to run ahead of God, and we are still fighting those battles because all of the Jews are descendants of Isaac. All of the Arabs, the Muslims, the Palestinians, all of the Arabs are descendants of Ishmael, and they do not, they will not get along. I don't care how many peace accords you try to have. They're not going to get along because someone decided, a control freak decided to run ahead of God. Muhammad comes from the line of Ishmael. And over 2,000 years after we've been talking about, after the Jews have been talking about that, that Abram uh, went up on the mountain and it was Ishmael was the son of the promise, Muhammad comes along and says, oh, no, 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 Ishmael. He redefines 2,000 years later and says, no, 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 we're going to fall. Here's what you need to know. Chaos happens every time you run ahead of God. Because I think there's some control freaks listening or watching and you're, you're, you're like, whatever, I'm going to say it again. Chaos happens every time you run ahead of God. We can trace it all back to this couple who said, I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to evict him out of my life and I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Now, I think some of you are going, well, this will never happen to me. I'd never sleep with a maidservant named Hagar. We don't even have maidservants in our house. All right, all right. All the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. Has there been a single lady who said, well, there's no Christians around. I know I'm supposed to marry a Christian, but there's not any. Since God is not bringing a Christian man into my life, I'll just take this one. And they'll settle for less than God's best. You force something, you manipulate something, you compromise, you settle for something that's less than God's. Because you're just tired of waiting on God. You're going to take control. Or if you're a follower of Jesus, and the Bible says you're supposed to give 10% of your income, we call it the tithe, and that just means 10%, T-I-T-H-E, 10%. You say, well, we'll do that later when we're out of debt. Read Malachi, especially chapter 3, when God says, will a man rob God? And they're like, we're not robbing you guys. He says, yes, you are with the tithes and the offerings. You're not bringing to me what is mine. Therefore, <laughs> you, don't want to, you don't want to see that, therefore. We'll do that later, or we'll just not do it at all. We'll just rob you, God, and then we'll complain that you're not doing what you say you're going to do in our lives. <laughs> or you really, really, really want something, but you can't afford it. So what do you do? You finance it. You make a very bad long-term decision, financial decision for short-term benefit, because you're not about to wait on God. 
You know better than God. So I want to challenge you right now. I want you to think about it. If you have the listening guide, I want you to write it down. What are you trying to control right now? Because I think everybody in the room is trying to control something or someone. What are you trying to control? Write it on your listening guide or, or put it in your, your uh, phone. And, and I want you to talk with someone this week that you respect about it. Now, I live in a constant amazement of, um, of how people rationalize their disobedience to God. <laughs> You're trying to control something and... And if you want to be who God wants you to be, God says you can be, you're going to have to lay down your control at the altar. Because control for everyone but God is really an illusion. I'm asking you to admit this. And some of you, some of you already done it. I watched you. Some of you are saying, I ain't doing it because you told me to. You ain't finna control me. Well, then you just stay in control, turn your back on God. And when you wind up on your face, pray to God that your spouse doesn't say, Doug talked about this. <laughs> You'll show me if, you, if you're not going to lay this down before God. Now, when you admit what you're trying to control, then I want you to ask three questions. I want you to ask these three questions for the rest of your life. God can save you from all kinds of pain and sorrow if you'll ask these three questions. Number one, is it worth my concern? Is it worth my concern? You remember when um, Jesus went to Bethany and he was going to have dinner with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This was long before Lazarus had died, before Jesus raised him from the dead. Martha is what we would call a control freak. She's in the kitchen. She wants everything to be uh, great. Mary, the sister, is sitting there listening to Jesus, the Son of God, teach, right? Martha loses it and tells the Son of God, yo, Jesus, tell my sister to get up off her sorry tail and help me in the kitchen. Now, that's the perverted Washburn translation, but you get it. And here's what Jesus says. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, calm down. Never in the history of women has a woman calmed down when told to calm down. That is not what Jesus said, right? Jesus is a lot smarter than that. You and I aren't dudes, but Jesus is. Here's what Jesus said. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. Was that true? Mm-hmm. But few things are needed, indeed only one. Now look at this. Mary has chosen what is better. You have, you have the opportunity to choose something that's better. And Jesus says, when you choose what is better, it's not going to be taken away from you. This isn't worth getting upset about. But because of our inflated egos, we're trying to control things that one month from now will not matter. Six months from now will not matter. Does it really matter if someone doesn't fold your towels right? No, someone's future just got set free at New Life Community Church. Does it really matter if your grade school son goes off to school with his hair messed up or his clothes don't match? Will that keep him out of college someday? Will that send him to hell or jail or both? No. Does it really matter if your wife leaves trash in your car and some of you are going, yes, Doug, it does. No, it doesn't. Is it worth my concern? Or at least ask this question, is it worth my level of concern? No, it is not. Question two, is it mine to control? Now, sometimes the answer is yes. You should do something about things that you can do something about, but there's many times the answer is no. 
Surrendering control is not the same as relinquishing responsibility. For example, if you're messed up financially, you should cut back on your spending. Can you do something about it? You should do something about it. You can learn to budget. You can get a mentor. You can cut up your credit cards. Go through Financial Peace University. If your marriage is messed up, you should do something about it. Pray together. Invite others to speak into your marriage and listen to what they have to say. Get into marriage counseling. You can start doing a, a U version. U version is so simple to do. It'll send you a reminder. It's the Bible app on your phone. You can get it anywhere. You can even download um, the different translations of the Bible so you don't even have to have internet. Do a reading plan together. Have date nights together. Janie and I are going this week. It is 30-year anniversary on Tuesday. I still like her. I like y'all, but y'all ain't in the same category. If I have to choose, I'm going to hang out with her. So we're going to go to Austin. We're going to hang out for a couple of days and just celebrate our lives together. You can't get to 30 years if you don't like each other, if you don't celebrate your life together regularly. You can do something about it. You should do something about it. If you're a guy and you haven't been on a date in seven years... Do you just pray, God, bring someone into my... Well, yes, but do something about it. Get involved in church. Go somewhere. Take a bath for God's sake. <laughs> Brush your teeth. Put on some deodorant. Sell your Xbox and move out of your parents' basement. That's a start. Smile at girls. Ask them out. Can you do something about it? You should do something about it. But there's a whole lot of things we can't control. And the, and the half-brother of Jesus, James writes this in James 4, 13 and 14. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Look at this. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. How many know for sure what's going to happen tomorrow? You know whether someone's going to die. You know whether you're going to get some weird text or something in the mail that says your warranty is about to expire. You're pretty sure of that one, right? Okay, we can guess that one. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's okay to... Well, look what the last says. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It's okay to plan, but you better include God in those plans. If you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, you sure don't know what's going to happen 365 days from tomorrow. You can't control the weather or your two-year-old. Yeah, I've seen... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it worth my concern... Is it mine to control? And then here's the last question to ask for the rest of your life. Is it for God alone? Huh. Don't mess with what's God's. Here's what it says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be what? Is that a suggestion? It's a command. Do not be anxious about anything, but at every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. What are you supposed to do? What's that next word? Present. So this is where you go to the altar and you present your anxieties to God, your requests, your flat-out needs. God, my soul needs this. You present your request to God. And then look what God says. If you present them and let them go, look what he says. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You got to exchange your anxiety for his peace. You can't hold on to both. 
you're holding on to anxiety, you will not have peace. How many of you, I'm not, this is not stone casting time. How many of you are anxious about something? This, let's just be real honest. When you're anxious, you're trying to control something that is not yours to control. Whatever it is, you need to lay it down today at the altar of God. You surrender it. And when you do, God says, I'll give you peace. Because of our ego, we're trying to hold on to and control things that belong to God alone. And that's why we're stressed. That's why we're afraid. If you'll lay it down, genuinely lay it down, you'll get peace. Does anybody want the peace of God that surpasses all understanding to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? Miss Katie's the only one in the room. Okay, all right. So let me just ask you some questions. Can you change your spouse? No. But I like a challenge. Just put the word idiot. Just have it tattooed on your forehead if you think you can change your spouse. You can love your spouse. You can pray for your spouse. You can encourage your spouse, but you can't change them. What do you do if your spouse needs changing? First thing is it requires way more power than you possess to change your spouse. So you love them, you pray for them, you trust God to them, and you quit trying to control them. Can you heal a sick loved one? No. Can God do that? Sure. You pray for them, you encourage them, you drive them to the doctor, you help them get good medical advice, but you can't control that. Can you control the future? No, you can pray, plan, get wise counsel, make wise decisions. So like we were supposed to go to Israel this summer, and when they started throwing bombs back and forth, I'm like, praise God, we're not going to Israel this summer, right? Um, We planned for it, we prayed about it, but it's not going to happen this year. So we're going to just back it up next year. Here's the thing. I didn't even have Lake Charles on my radar until just a few weeks ago when I started noticing that Israel still wasn't open, even to people who were vaccinated. I said, you know, God, maybe I should have a plan B. And God says, Lake Charles. I'm telling you, in my heart, God said Lake Charles. And so I started mentioning it. We may have 30 people go from our church on a mission trip. That's more than we've ever taken on a mission trip before. We're going to drive three hours and 40 minutes. We're going to do some work in the name of the Lord And even even if we hand out a cup of cold water, Jesus says, that's not wasted when you do it in my name. So what if the church pays 150 bucks? I'd rather pay for us to go and serve than to sit on our butts and do nothing. I'm just not one of those sit on my butts and do nothing thing. Do you know what, God, what Abraham wanted from God more than anything else, right? He's, he and his wife were childless. In that society, it was a disgrace to be childless. And sorry, ladies, in that society, it doesn't count the same to have, have a girl. So what did Abram want more than anything else? A son. Whenever he had a son, not Ishmael, whenever he had Isaac, what did God ask him to sacrifice? His son, the thing he wanted more than anything else. This father who'd prayed for a son. God says, I want you to lay him on the altar. So he tells his son, we're going we're gonna to travel. And so he takes his servants and his son. He says, we're going to travel three days and we're going we're gonna to worship God. We're going to sacrifice. So it gets to the point and he tells his servants, you stay here. 
Isaac and I are going to go worship the Lord. And then he says, we're going to return to you. It's, it's a crazy story. He chops up the wood and he puts the wood on Isaac. He's probably 12 years old at this time. And they start walking. And then, then the Bible says that Abram has, um, he has the fire um, and the knife. And so Isaac's been around. They're walking along, he and dad, walking up a mountain. They're going to worship. And he looks around and he goes, dad, where's the animal for the sacrifice? And Abram says something remarkable. He says, the Lord will provide. This, this story kind of makes me sick to my stomach. Because this guy who wanted to control everything, all of a sudden is trusting God. That's not what makes me sick to my stomach. What makes me sick to my stomach is they walk up, he builds the altar, he ties his 12-year-old son up, lays him down on the altar, raises the knife to kill his son. That's what makes me sick to my stomach. What do you think the boy's thinking? And then look what happens. This is remarkable. Genesis 22, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord. Now, if you were here last week, you heard me say, the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate. Either it's God himself or it's Jesus Christ putting on skin. The angel of the Lord come, called out from heaven, Abram, Abraham, Abraham, Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your one and only son, that thing you wanted more than anything else. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place what? And to this day, You go with us to Israel next year. We will walk up on the Temple Mount and we'll say, this is the place where God provided for Isaac, not Ishmael. Because there's a bunch of Muslims up there that'll tell you that that was Ishmael. No, it's not. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham had learned his lesson. It took years for him to let go control. Have you learned that lesson? Because when you take what belongs only to God and you lay it at his altar, that's when, for the first time in your life, you will come to know God as Jehovah Jireh, which means my provider. The Lord is my provider. Let's pray together. Father, I I can't even begin to to say that I comprehend what was going through Abram's mind later when you changed his name to Abraham and you reminded him that he was going to be the father of many nations. Can't comprehend when you said, I want you to lay your son down on the altar physically, literally. I don't understand that, Lord. But what I understand is as soon as he was willing to lay it on the altar, you provided a substitute. God, help us to lay down what we're trying to control so that you can fill us with your spirit and you can make us into the people you want us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.